Y'all had some great questions that I answered on yesterday's mailbag episode of the podcast, but there was only so much time to answer questions then. So today, we open the mailbag once again. It's a Mailbag Tuesday episode of the Locked On Orioles podcast. You are Locked On Orioles, your daily Baltimore Orioles podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hey there, Orioles fans. Today is Tuesday, October 11th, 2022, and welcome back in to the Locked On Orioles podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. As always, I'm your host, Connor Newcomb. And coming up on today's episode, we're opening the mailbag once again for a Mailbag Tuesday episode of the podcast. If you missed Monday's episode, go back and listen to that. It was Mailbag Monday. We answered nine Orioles questions. And on today's episode, we're going to do the same thing, answering nine more listener questions here on today's pod. We're going to talk a lot more about really the offseason outlook for the Orioles. That's what most of these questions are about, what they can do in free agency, what they can do in trades, what they'll do with some of the players currently on the roster as well. And a good question we'll answer at the end about who they could add to the 40-man roster and protect from the Rule 5 draft later this winter. But that's all coming up on this episode of the Locked On Orioles podcast. We thank you so much for making Locked On Orioles your first listen of the day. We got content continuing all throughout the offseason. We're still five days a week on audio and on video here on the Locked On Orioles YouTube page until November. Then we go down to three days a week, but still owes content all offseason. And later this week, we're starting our player season in review series. You are not going to want to miss that either. But we thank you again for making Locked On Orioles your first listen of the day. For your first listen today, let's get right into the mailbag. A Mailbag Tuesday episode, nine questions to answer all from the listeners. If you want to ask a question, will be answered on a future Mailbag episode. You can either tweet at or DM the podcast account at Locked on Orioles or my account at Connor Newcomb underscore. You can email us at LockedOnOrioles at gmail.com. You can leave a comment on one of our YouTube videos and you can leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts and leave your question in the review section. But we thank everyone who left questions and let's jump right into it with our first mailbag question of the day. This one comes from Dylan on Twitter who asks, am I crazy for wanting the Orioles to pick up Jordan Lyle's option? Dylan, no, you are not crazy. I've talked about this a couple of times on the pod over the last couple of weeks. The Orioles have a decision to make coming up when the postseason ends. And that decision is about Jordan Lyles. Now, they signed him to what was initially a one-year deal last offseason, but it had a team option for a second year. And that team option is for $11 million. Now, Lyles made $7 million this year with the Orioles. And, I mean, he finished top five in most valuable Oriole. I would have put him second. He was valuable to this Oriole team. Made 32 starts. You know, was rarely injured at all through 179 innings. That was 50 more innings than any other Orioles pitcher and pitched to a 4.42 ERA, which is averaging a quality start every time he goes out there. Now, the option is for $11 million for the 2023 season. And even if the Orioles pick it up, they don't have to pitch him every five days for the entirety of next year. They could just have him in the rotation to start the year just to be kind of a veteran presence and a guy you know can go out there and give you six-plus innings every time you throw him and can keep you in the game. He could be kind of the fallback option if anybody gets hurt. You know, if Dean Kramer or Tyler Wells pick up an injury in spring training or Grayson Rodriguez or D.L. Hall aren't quite ready yet. 
He can also be the guy who's just kind of there until you get John Means back. You know, the Orioles are not going to have Means back by opening day from his Tommy John surgery that he got in late April. They can expect him back fully, I mean, maybe by July, hopefully by June, but probably by July. So maybe you just have Lyles until then. And then, you, you know, do you trade him? You, you, you release him? It doesn't hurt for $11 million, I don't think. As long as the Orioles are going to open up that checkbook this offseason, and as Michael Elias has said, it's liftoff. If that is the case, I don't think $11 million should keep you from bringing back Jordan Lyles, at least for a depth option. And hey, you go into next year with him as your four or five starter to start the year. You see what happens if other guys overtake him. They overtake him. That's how the Orioles should be operating moving forward. $11 million shouldn't keep you from making your team potentially better or at least have more depth because... They say you got to go into spring training with at least eight starting pitchers and preferably nine or ten. Lyles could certainly be one of those guys. I'm still 50-50 on whether I really think the O's will pick up that option. They could always pick it up and kind of trade him right away like they did with Jose Iglesias a couple years ago. But I don't think you're crazy at all, Dylan, for thinking that they will pick up that option. Second question comes from Johnny Million on Twitter who asks, do most teams have clubhouse guys? It's, it's a good question because it's what we heard about the likes of Rugnet Odor and Robinson Chirinos and, and Jordan Lyles as well, but obviously Lyles produced more on the field as we talked about. But it's what we really heard about Rugnet Odor and Robinson Chirinos all season. Now, Chirinos was terrible this year. I mean, bad hitter, bad catcher. Odor had his moments and some big moments for the O's, but in general was not a very productive player for the Baltimore Orioles in 2022. But the reason we continue to hear why the O's kept those two guys around, even when they went into bench roles, especially Odor later in the season, is that they were big clubhouse guys. You know, we heard so much about how Robinson Chiritos not only mentored Adley Rutschman, but was just beloved in that clubhouse. We heard so much about how Rugnet Odor brought the energy to that team and, and everything he brought and really the, you know, just the, the, the know-how in a playoff race. Odor was really one of the only guys who had been in a stretch like that with another team, the veteran presence. And it's a good question, and I will say, really the younger a team is, the less experienced a team is, the more clubhouse guys they're going to have. Like, for example, look at the Oakland A's this year. They traded basically all their good players in the offseason. They had a super young, super inexperienced, and, and obviously very bad team in 2022. But a guy they did roster who had a very cool moment, you know, retired as an A, homered in his last game, was Steven Vogt, who ended up being Oakland's backup catcher for a lot of the year, played some first base, some DH. He was terrible this year. Steven Vogt had a 64 WRC+. plus. He was 36% worse than your league average hitter this year. But you know why the A's kept him around? Because he came up as an Oakland A, A's fans love him, and everything you hear about Steven Vogt is that he's one of the best, if not the very best clubhouse guy in all of Major League Baseball. So the A's saw a team that was going to lose a lot, a team that was very young, not a lot of MLB experience, and they thought Steven Vogt could be the perfect guy for this clubhouse. And that's kind of what Chirinos and Odor were for the Orioles. Now, as teams get better and have more veteran presence, and their veterans are their good players, you see less and less of those, quote, clubhouse guys. I mean, some of the examples around the big leagues, Jesus Aguilar was kind of that for the Marlins this year before he came out over to the Orioles. Zach Greinke on a young Royals team. Carlos Santana for the upstart Seattle Mariners. Uh, the Arizona Diamondbacks had guys like Mark Melanson and Ian Kennedy in their bullpen. Daniel Bard, you know, the 37-year-old the closer for the Colorado Rockies, kind of played that role. Although some of those guys produce better than others. But in general, I think moving forward, 
the O's are going to have less and less of those guys that are just strictly those veteran clubhouse guys that are just strictly in that Chirinos or Odor role. But what you will see as years go on and the O's get better and better is the young talent will become the clubhouse guys. You look at the San Diego Padres, for example. They've got some really great talent, as we've seen in the regular season and the postseason. Manny Machado kind of serves as their clubhouse guy. He's been a leader in San Diego. He's also the leading candidate for NL MVP this year. So when you get better as a more veteran team with more talent, you kind of morph into, well, our good players, our good veteran players are also our clubhouse leaders. But it's a good question from Johnny, and you definitely see it more in these younger, less experienced teams. Third question comes from Ali Khan on Twitter, who asks something about the draft, which you know is not until July of next year, but always good to take a look forward. He said, will picking in the middle of the first round change Michael Elias' bat-heavy approach in the draft? And then asked, if it does, what are some potentially mid-first round pitchers who the Orioles could select next year? Now, first of all, the Orioles theoretically by record would pick 17th in the first round of next year's draft. However, 2023 is the first year of the draft lottery that got implemented with the new CBA this year. So the Orioles aren't specifically going to draft 17th this year. Now, every team that did not make the playoffs gets entered into the draft lottery. So the Orioles, they have a 0.3% chance of getting the number one pick, but theoretically, they could still get the number one pick. They could get a top five pick. They could get a top 10 pick. The odds aren't terrible to get, you know, ninth, 10th, 11th pick. But if it went by record, they would be 17th. So you can assume they'll be somewhere picking probably between like 14 and 18. They can't pick lower than 18, but somewhere between 14 and 18. I do not think it will change the approach and will push them towards pitchers. I think Michael Elias has shown time and time again, that not even in the first round, but in the first five, six, seven rounds of the draft. You know, his earliest pitchers the last couple of years have been fifth round guys, basically. So he is content on taking those college bats with those first few picks. And obviously you take a guy like Gunnar Henderson and they took Jackson Holiday number one. Those are more special cases to take a high school bat, but it's still not a pitcher. I think he's shown that his philosophy is you're going to draft the bats and you're going to trade for the arms or sign the arms in free agency. So I still would expect the Orioles to draft most likely a college bat if they do pick somewhere like 17th. But what I will say, if they do go for arms, and thanks to the Prospects Live early mock draft 1.0 for 2023, wanted to just throw out three names of pitchers that could be there to answer the question. First one is Hurston Waldrip. He is a right-hander who will be pitching at Florida this spring. Previously pitched at Southern Miss, actually transferred to UF this offseason. He's got some crazy numbers. He had a 3.20 ERA in 17 starts, but he struck out 14 batters per nine this spring at a great baseball program at Southern Miss. He's got some nasty stuff. He's going to be a first-rounder. Another guy is Paul Skeens, who's actually a two-way player, a right-handed pitcher, and also plays some first base. Now, he was dominant at Air Force this spring, had a 2.74 ERA and 15 starts. He's also a transfer. He's going to head to LSU, and we get to see him against SEC talent. And then the third guy is Ross Dunn, actually also a transfer, a left-hander who will pitch at Florida State this spring. He spent 2022 at Arizona State, where he did have a 4.88 ERA in 48 innings, but 
77 strikeouts in 48 innings is a ridiculous number. Those are some guys who could be there if the O's wanted to take a pitcher in the first round, in the middle of the first round, kind of a new spot for Michael Elias and the O's coming up in the 2023 draft. But that draft is pretty far away. But at some point, you know, as we get closer and closer to that draft, you'll start to get some odds and, you know, see some lines on who could be taken number one overall in the draft. Now, the O's most likely won't have that pick, but you'll get some lines and some odds and everything in between at betonline.net, which is your number one source for all your sports betting info this season. Of course, they got all the lines and all the odds for every Major League Baseball playoff matchup as we get into the division series and get closer and closer to the World Series this October. But it's not just baseball. It's, of course, football every weekend. You got college football on Saturdays, the NFL on Sundays, all the lines, all the live betting up to the minute scores. You can get news, in-depth articles and analysis, listen to podcasts, latest player developments, everything you can find to be your most educated sports Wager, and of course, we got the NFL, or we got the NHL season, the NBA season coming soon. They've got everything at BetOnline.net. So head to BetOnline.net or use your mobile device to learn more. That's BetOnline, where the game starts. So it's a Mailbag Tuesday episode of the podcast here as we're answering your Orioles questions. We've talked about three so far. We got six to go, and here is question number four, which comes from Dave Chapman on Twitter, who asks simply. Can Connor Norby stick at second base? And simply put, yes, he can. Now, we know the bat was astounding this year. Between AA and AAA, he you know, was the Orioles minor league leader in home runs this season, almost hit 30 this year, went to AAA and was like the best AAA hitter in the two weeks he was up there at the end of the season. Now, he's not a guy who's going to be on the opening day roster for the Orioles next year, but if he does not get traded for Major League talent this offseason, he's going to be in play to be with the O's next season. And yes, he can stick at second. Now, I don't think he's got the defense to play shortstop or even really to play third, but he can stick at second base. And here's the other good thing. He's been working some in the outfield, specifically in left field in the minors as well, and that's a part of his game he has too. So if you need to play him defensively in left field, he can do that as well, and I think he is solid enough defensively at second base to not turn into just kind of a DH guy. He can stay there, and that will help the Orioles as well. But that bat is fun to watch. Connor Norby, second-round pick in 2021, another great pick by Mike Elias. Next question comes from Madison, who asks, any chance that Austin Hayes is non-tendered this offseason? And it's a good question for Madison. Actually, something I've addressed, I think, once or twice during the season on the podcast, especially in the second half of the year when Austin Hayes was just struggling mightily. Now, he had a nice little burst over the really the last two or three weeks of the season. The bat awoke just in time to, to get the numbers a little bit up. But at the end of the year, Austin Hayes this year hit 250 with a 306 on base and a 413 slugging, 16 homers, a 105 WRC plus, which means he was 5% better than a league average hitter, and had a 1.5 war according to Fangraph. So not any kind of slouch, and he was very valuable for the Orioles at times this year, but of course it was a tale of two halves for Austin Hayes. First half of the year, you know, April, May, June, he was playing at an all-star level. July, August, September, he was bad, bad, bad. Very, very bad, like almost automatic out bad at times. So 
your question becomes, you know, we finally get to see a full Austin Hayes season. Finally plays a full year. He had a couple of, of you know, nicks and bruises and missed some games, but never really went on the injured list with any kind of injury. So we got to see basically a full healthy Austin Hayes season. And what we got was a roller coaster. So we still have the questions of what is Austin Hayes? What kind of player is he moving forward? And I still don't think we know the answer here. But he first came up in 2017. I mean, he's been up in the bigs for a little while now. We still don't really know what he is. And now decisions may become a little tougher. Austin Hayes hits arbitration this offseason for the first time. Now, it doesn't mean he's going to have some astronomical payout. Again, he was bad down the stretch, and he was just barely better than a league average hitter. You know, maybe he makes somewhere in between one and two million in arbitration. I don't think that number is nearly high enough. Maybe it gets up to, I don't know, $3 million at the absolute most. But that number is not nearly high enough to just non-tender Austin Hayes. What a non-tender is, if you're wondering, a non-tender is, you know, players get to arbitration. After three years in the big leagues, they go to arbitration, which means, you know, they try to come to an agreement each year on how much money they will make in that next season. And it's all dependent on your stats. The team and the player come together. If they can't come to an agreement, they go to an arbiter who settles it out and settles on a final number. So in general, he'll make you know somewhere between, again, one and three million probably in arbitration this year. Remember, Anthony Santander made about two million this year. That's probably what Austin Hayes is looking at coming off a year like this. Even if you think Hayes is not an everyday starting outfielder for you moving forward just because of his play on the field, even if you think... You'll add an outfielder or Kyle Stowers or Colton Kowser is going to come up and take his spots. It is not worth just non-tendering him, which basically means you cut him loose. Instead of paying him in arbitration, you just release him and he becomes a free agent. It's not worth it. I mean, even, even if you wanted to trade for starting pitching and you attached Austin Hayes to the deal to sweeten the pot to a team that was looking for an outfielder, you know, maybe a rebuilding team or a younger team or a team like the Marlins that needs bats. At the very least, do that. I wouldn't. Now, the play on the field is concerning, and it made me bring this up a couple of times on the pod. It made Madison ask this question, would he get non-tendered? But I think ultimately, if Mike Elias says it's liftoff and the payroll is going to increase, even $2 million to Austin Hayes is not going to make them non-tender a guy who is still better than average and has still been important to this team over the last couple of years. Even if you think he's a fourth outfielder for your team moving forward, that's worth $2 million at this point to still see if he can bottle up what he did in the first three months of the year and extend that out to maybe four or five months. Because then you still have something. It's not like he was terrible all season. If he was, maybe you do not tender. But he showed some great, great skills at the plate and at the, in the field, especially in the first half. I'm still holding on to him. Even if you're not completely convinced, which I'm not. I'm not completely convinced on Austin Hayes being a starter moving forward. I'm shaky on that at the least. But you don't non-tender this guy, especially for that little amount of money. Next question, also from Ali Khan. Thank you for sending multiple questions in for the podcast, asking which prospect besides Grayson Rodriguez and Jordan Westberg do you think will debut first for the Orioles in 2023? Now, this is a really good question because, A, Grayson Rodriguez will debut, unless there's an injury, in the first five games of 2023. He's going to be in the starting rotation for the Orioles unless something unforeseen happens, and he's going to make his major league debut. And Jordan Westberg, I don't know if he'll be on the opening day roster. He doesn't have to be added to the 40-man this offseason, so we'll see. 
He can certainly play his way onto the opening day roster next year. Hopefully the Orioles don't fiddle with that service time. But he'll be up early in the season if he's still here. You would think. I mean, he's, he was so good this year. Orioles minor league player of the year. But it's a good question because beyond those two guys, you kind of look at Connor Norby, Joey Ortiz, Colton Kowser. Now they're all in AAA. They're all top 10 prospects. They all had amazing 2021 seasons. But they're going to need some seasoning at AAA. You know, all three of those guys kind of just came up to AAA at the end of the year. Michael Elias is going to want to get them some at-bats at AAA. And there could be some rookies who make the opening day roster who are certainly going to debut before those guys. I came up with an interesting name to answer this question. Maybe it's a little off the board. It's not a top 10 guy. It's a top 30 prospect for the Orioles right now. I'm going to say Chris Valamont is that guy. Valamont, right-handed pitcher, who the Orioles actually claimed off waivers from the Minnesota Twins during this season. He was actually in an interesting spot where Valamont was with the Twins last offseason. He was Rule 5 eligible. And even though he had only pitched a little bit in double-A, mostly in high-A, the Twins put him on the 40-man to protect him because they thought, his stuff's too good, we got to keep him. Well, he goes to double-A on the 40-man, and his double-A with Minnesota was just a disaster. They need the 40-man spot because they're competing for a playoff spot. So they DFA him. The Orioles claim him. The O's send him down to double-A. They fix him, it looks like. He dominates. He goes up to triple-A, and the results were back and forth. 72 innings. A 5.38 ERA, 67 Ks to 23 walks. But he got his walks way down. He was walking more guys than he was striking out in the twin system. The stuff's really good. High-velocity fastball, great breaking pitch. I think the O's can turn him into a shutdown reliever. And, hey, if he comes into spring training looking good, throwing strikes, why couldn't he be in the opening day bullpen? So I'll throw Chris Valamont out there for that answer. But I've got three more questions to answer coming up here on this mailbag episode, and we will get to those, including a question about the Rule 5 draft coming up next. So three more questions to get to here on a Mailbag Tuesday episode of the podcast. Again, make sure to go back and listen to Monday's episode if you missed it. Answer nine Orioles questions. Then answering nine more Orioles questions from you, the listener, right here on this episode. And question number seven comes from at Orioles Sirloin on Twitter, who asks, are you disappointed with the Mike Elias deadline moves from this year and his delay in promoting some of the top prospects? And I think I've made my opinion on this pretty clear throughout the year. Very clear. I was disappointed with the deadline. Trading away Jorge Lopez for four pitching prospects. Trading away Trey Mancini for two pitching prospects. And the only major league player you add is a Brett Phillips who just got DFA'd, couldn't hit, and played most of the year in AAA after that trade. For a team that was in the wild card race, the Orioles subtracted from the team. Now, did I think the O's should have gone all out and added a bunch of guys and traded away prospects to make the wild card this year? No. But I would have liked to see them hold on to Lopez, who had multiple years of control, hold on to Trey, who meant so much to this team, and at least let that group stay together and go for it. Maybe they would have made the postseason with Trey and Jorge. I don't know if they would have because the teams above them were so talented, but maybe they would have. But yeah, I was disappointed with that. And I was disappointed with Gunnar Henderson. I made it very clear throughout the month of August that Henderson was ready and should have been in the big leagues. And the O's didn't call him up until August 31st. I thought Kyle Stowers probably deserved to be up a little bit sooner than he was. Adley Rutschman probably should have been up a little bit sooner, although it was kind of tough with the injury to, to really see how much they held him down. But yeah, I've made it very clear. But what I will say to this question, the reason why I included it, although I've really answered it on the podcast before, is that Michael Elias can make up for all that by 
making some win-now moves this offseason, whether it be trades, free agent signings. He can make up for this deadline, or at least get close to make up for trading for trading away Trey Mancini if he really adds to this team and makes them a lot better here this winter. Next question of the day comes from Phil Robb on Twitter. This is a really good one. And this is a question I did a little digging to get to, but got myself, uh, I think, a pretty complete list here. And Phil asks, which players are Rule 5 eligible this offseason? Now, we'll have multiple episodes about this moving forward this offseason. About mid-November will be the deadline for teams to add players to their 40-man roster. Of course, players who are eligible for the Rule 5 draft. And if they don't add them to the 40-man, those players can be drafted away by other teams in December's Rule 5 draft. So if you remember last winter, the Orioles added multiple players to their 40-man roster. That included D.L. Hall and Felix Bautista and Taryn Vavra and Logan Gillespie. And then the Rule 5 draft got canceled because of the lockout. And so they ended up needing to add those guys. Remember, they did not add Nick Vespi. He almost certainly would have been taken. The O's got to keep Vespi, and well, he made an impact at the big league level this year. So the question is, who is available and who needs to be added? Well, there's three big names that are no doubt easy ads. And as we get closer and closer to the deadline in November, we'll break this down further and we'll really get a sense for how many open spots the Orioles have on the 40-man roster. But there's three easy ads. Number one is Grayson Rodriguez. He has to be added. That's why I always thought the Orioles would call up Grayson Rodriguez for one appearance at the end of the year because they had to add him to the 40-man anyway. So you might as well just call him up, get people in the ballpark, get him to pitch in the bigs. Whatever, they didn't, but they got to add him, and they will. He's the top pitching prospect in baseball. Number two is Drew Rahm, top 15 prospect for the Orioles right now, left-hander who made it to AAA, continues to have good stuff. You know, he's not the pitcher that D.L. Hall is or anything like that, but you cannot risk losing him. A team would snatch him up in a second. I think he's certainly being added to the 40-man. And then Joey Ortiz as well. I mean, he would have been kind of a bubble candidate this time last year if we were talking about, you know, who gets added next season. But after the incredible second half of the season Ortiz had this year in Bowie and Norfolk, he's an easy add. You got to add Joey Ortiz. So he's getting added as well. And then there's a large group of really interesting names. And some of the guys who I think the O's would be on the fence about. Number one is Seth Johnson. He's got to be added. I think he's a fourth almost guarantee. Of course, Johnson was one of the two pitchers who came over in the Trey Mancini trade. Johnson came from the Rays in that three-way deal. He was actually the Rays' number six-ranked prospect, but as soon as the trade happened, he underwent Tommy John surgery. So if another team takes him, I, I got to figure out how exactly this would work. I think another team could take him, stash him on the injured list, and keep him. So I think the O's will put him on the 40-man, and then put him on the 60-day injured list next year. We'll see how that works out, but either way, they're going to keep him in the system. They're not just going to even take a chance of letting him go. So that's four guys right there. Then beyond that, you've got some interesting names. Maverick Hanley is available. Double-A catcher, great defensive skills. I just don't think the bat is there enough to protect him. Maybe a team would take a chance on him to be their backup catcher, but I don't think so. Then you got some guys like Caden Grenier in AAA, just don't think the bat's there for another team to take him. Robert Newstrom, the Orioles did not protect him last year. He had a really down year this year, so I don't see them protecting him this year. Blaine Knight, the former third-round pick for the O's in 2018, the stuff was always there, but he's just kind of fallen off. He's become a mop-up reliever in AAA. I don't see them adding Blaine Knight. 
Then you've got some other guys. You know, Adam Hall is still there. There's no chance they add him whatsoever. Maybe a Tim Naughton had a bounce back year out of the Norfolk bullpen, but I still don't see them adding a guy like that. Adam Stauffer has great stuff in double A, but sometimes he doesn't know where it's going. Not sure about him. O's have two other injured guys they have to think about. Zach Peek and Kyle Branovich, two of the pitchers they got back in the Dylan Bundy trade. Both underwent Tommy John surgery this season. So again, they both fall into the Seth Johnson space where the O's really want to keep those guys. But it's a question of how they can maneuver the Tommy John. All those guys will be missing all of next year, you would probably think. So how do they play that with the 40-man roster and the injured list? We will see. And then you got a couple other names that I'll throw out there. Noah DeNoyer had a great year as a pitcher, former undrafted free agent. I think the O's might add Noah DeNoyer. I think of all these kind of iffy list guys, DeNoyer might be number one. He was so good this year in AA. Garrett Stallings had a very interesting year in AA. I think it was the month of June where he had like, I believe, don't quote me on this, a uh, 752 ERA. I believe that's what it was. But then in every other month, he was great. Stallings came over in the Jose Iglesias trade. The O's will think long and hard about that one, although he did not get to AAA at any point. Easton Lucas came over the Jonathan VR trade, was okay this year. Tyler Birch is another one, came over in the Freddie Galvis trade last year. Just kind of a reliever who had an up-and-down year at AA. There's a couple other names, Jake Prezina, Morgan McSweeney. I think the Orioles like his stuff. He could be kind of, you know who Morgan McSweeney could be? Morgan McSweeney could be the Logan Gillespie of this year, where... No one sees any reason for the Orioles to add that guy to the 40-man to protect from the Rule 5 draft, and then they do because they have some kind of underlying data on him. That could be Morgan McSweeney, so watch out for that. But that's kind of a, you know, it's a pretty exhaustive list, but that's your list of names. That's not even everyone that's eligible, but those are kind of the guys I think the Orioles would consider for keeping, and we'll dive much deeper into this on future episodes. But Final question of the day comes from Baltimore Modern on Twitter who asks, what's the floor and what's the ceiling for Orioles spending this offseason? It's a good question. Let's start with the floor. The floor is they do what they did last offseason and they add a little bit of money on the edges and they take a $40 million payroll to a $50 million payroll and it's still one of the lowest in baseball. I mean, with a fight going on between your owners and seeing what the team has done the last four years... That's still, unfortunately, the floor. The ceiling, I would think it's up to around maybe $150 million. I mean, with arbitration, you're adding about $10 million anyway, so the payroll goes up to about $50 million. And that's $100 million in free agent contracts. If you want to give out $25 million to Carlos Rodon, go do it. If you want to give out $25 million to Trey Turner, Carlos Correa, Xander Bogarts, go do it. If you want to add an outfielder for $10 million to help, if you want to add a, another you know, mid-level starting pitcher for 10 to $15 million, go do it. You want to add a reliever for $5 million to bulk up the bullpen, a bench bat for $5 million, go do it, go do it. I don't think they'll get up to $150 million. I fully expect them to pass $100 million, though, in their payroll. And you know, $180 million was kind of the peak it got to during the Buck Walter dan Duquette era under the same ownership, although there's a lot more going on with those owners right now with the Angeloses. But I would say max ceiling 150, and we're hoping they get over 100 this offseason. Because Michael Elias said it was liftoff, and hopefully it will be liftoff for the O's this winter. But that'll do it for this episode. Get excited, though, because I'm back with you on the podcast tomorrow. Tomorrow starts one of the most exciting series I think I do here on this podcast. The Orioles 2022 
player season review series. We're going to go through every impact player on the Orioles this year. Give out their grade for the season. Talk about their year, what they did well, what they didn't. We'll have a guest on for almost every episode to break them down. And then we'll look forward to each of those players and talk about what their role could be with the O's moving forward or if they even have a role moving forward with the Orioles. That whole series starts tomorrow. But until then, I'm Connor Newcomb, and this has been the Locked On Orioles podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team, every day.